Our gospel reading this morning comes from the gospel of John chapter 8. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've been taking this season of Lent to look at our needs, our perceived needs, some of these needs that are good that we make into ultimate things, some of these things that we want that we make into demands. And during the season of Lent, where, which is meant to be a time of, of sacrifice, a time of giving up things to commune more deeply with God and to serve each other and to serve those outside, we're looking at these needs through that lens, through the lens of the gospel. And so we're going to take a few moments to look at the idea of freedom. Where does true freedom come from? And as we do that, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you give us your word to nourish us, to guide us. Let us feed upon your word and let it change us. Wherever we are enslaved this morning, wherever we're saying, why do I keep doing that same thing over and over? Wherever we're living by other people's unfair expectations, let us bring those things to you and let us be healed. Let us be set free. Father, let the gospel so reside in this church that it would be intoxicating, that your freedom would so reign in this body called in town that it would draw in those who are looking to be free. Father, whatever bondage binds us this morning, I pray that we would bring it to you and that you would change us and set us free. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're looking at this most famous of sayings from Jesus. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. It's enshrined in marble in the lobby of the CIA. It's also the model a motto of many prominent institutions of higher learning, Caltech, Johns Hopkins, and up the street at University of Portland. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We're looking at a really big idea this morning, the bondage of the human soul. How we often know the things that we should do, whether we're Christian or not this morning. We know the things that we should do, that we ought to do, and yet we fail in doing them. We know in a given situation or in just the bigger pattern of life what is right, what is healthy, what is good, and yet we find ourselves over and over not choosing those things. We knowingly choose the wrong path. Well, why is that? Well, most every world religion, wise teachers across traditions generally chart the same moral course. There's a great deal of overlap in the moral teachings of the great world religions and many wise teachers. There's a great deal of overlap in terms of good and bad behaviors and what's prescribed and what's proscribed for humanity. But where they part ways 
and this is important, is why. Why do you follow these things? Why should you be a moral person? Why should you choose this thing over that thing? Why is very important. And the world religions don't answer this in the same way. And Christianity has a very specific answer. Why do we fail to choose the right things? Well, I'm going to tell you. And if you're new here, if you're unfamiliar with Christianity, please stick with me for a few moments after I tell you, because I'm going to use a word that's not very popular. And given the way that some Christians have used it, I can understand why. But the Bible answers the question of why. Why do I do the things that I don't want to do? Why do I not do the things that I want to do? The Bible says it's because of sin. It's a wet blanket of a word, right? It's those things that we do that are really, really fun and pleasurable that God says you shouldn't do that anymore. Well, this word is not very understood, well understood. And we often use it to refer to other people's behavior rather than our own. But this is not what Jesus is talking about. This is not what the Bible means when it talks about sin. Sin isn't, first of all, something you do, but it's a power over you. It's a power It's the answer to the question of why do I do these things I don't want to do? Why do I not feel free? Verse 34, Truly, truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin, Jesus says, is a slave to sin. Jesus is telling us that there is a spiritual power at work over us and in us. And that it's constantly tugging on us. It's constantly leading us to negotiate. It's constantly leading us to compromise. I don't know what cartoons you grew up watching, but my kids watch very different cartoons than I watch. But one of the cartoons that we can both agree on that we enjoy is Tom and Jerry. And they're constantly beating the tar out of each other. So how could that not be funny? But every few episodes, Tom and Jerry would establish detente. They would join forces. They would become friends. And you'd see them, after beating the tar out of each other for three or four episodes, they'd be hanging out in the backyard and they'd be sipping on drinks with little umbrellas in them. And they'd be, they'd look over at the other person in their comfort and they'd be tempted to betray the truce. They'd be tempted to pick up a hammer and just go pound the other person. Hurting the other one was so much fun, and they'd practiced it so well for so long. Well, how did the writers convey that inner conflict that was going on in Tom or Jerry? Oftentimes, there'll be thought bubbles, but for Tom and Jerry, it was a little angel mouse on one shoulder and a devil mouse on the other shoulder. Or for Tom, it was an angel cat and a devil cat. And without fail, they always listened to the devil mouse and the devil cat. And they picked up the mallet and went over and pounded the other person. And you see the big bruise come out of their head. Even though life would be much easier, much more prosperous, much less dangerous for Tom and Jerry, if they just stayed friends without fail, they listened to that voice that led them to do things that disrupted peace, that harmed them, that caused animosity. Well, it's rather crude theology, but... Don't we understand that inner conflict? Don't we understand those competing voices in our lives? And don't we understand that propensity to listen to the wrong voice? To listen to the voice that says, you know, this won't really hurt that much. 
It's not that big a deal. You can negotiate here and still be faithful. That voice that says, you better guard your interests. Don't trust anyone. This one little compromise is no big deal. That voice is always present. And it's more powerful than just a voice. Jesus says that it's actually enslaving, that it has sway in our lives, that it overpowers our sense of what we, should, what we think we should do. Now, this is a very difficult thing to say in our culture, that we are all enslaved, that we're all in bondage, because our cultural narratives across the political ideological spectrum are founded upon the value of individual autonomy, the presumption that we are all free to make the choices that we want to make. And anything that pushes against that, we reject out of hand. But tell me, do these sound familiar to you? You have to follow your heart. You can't tell me what to do. Question authority. Says who? The choice is yours. Don't tread on me. These might be very modern expressions, but the underlying assumption is a very, very ancient one. You see, the crowds that listened to Jesus thought they too were free. They thought they were not in bondage or enslaved to sin, that they were free from restraint. And this is where Jesus challenges them. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will, then you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. When he says that to them, they don't say, wow, that's beautiful. We ought to put that on a building. We don't inscribe that in marble. That's fantastic. No, they get mad. They get defensive because it implies that they have something that they need to be set free from. And they know it and they get super defensive. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants. We have never been a slave of anyone. Now, isn't that funny? If you know anything about Israel's history, they were physically enslaved. In Egypt, in Babylon, in Assyria, in Rome, they were constantly enslaved. So what does that even mean? We are Abraham's descendants, and we have never been slaves of anyone. Baloney. But how, and then they say even beyond that, how can you, Jesus, say that we shall be free? How can you put that in the future as if it's not true of us now? Who are you to say shall? Maybe that's where we sit this morning. Who are you to say that I'm not free? Who are you to say that I'm in bondage? The ability, the option of self-definition, of, of choosing and seeking authentic personhood as we define it, are the highest marks of being human in our culture. But if you look around our culture, Americans are less happy than they ever have been. There's a much greater percentage of our population that describes itself as lonely. Addictions have proliferated. Technology has made it so we can work anywhere at any time, so we work everywhere and all the time. Is it worth asking that perhaps we're chained to our idea of freedom? That we're in bondage to our idea of personal autonomy and liberty? Maybe we're not shackled to sin as it's commonly understood 
in terms of immoral behavior, bad behavior, bad things that someone does, but in terms of our demand that nothing take away our precious autonomy. No one impinge upon my choices. No one limit my choices. Maybe that's where we're in bondage. If you read Jesus' teachings, if you're acquainted with His life, freedom is not being unbound by any commitments or boundaries. Because we all have these. Whether they're Christian or not, whether they're moral or not, we all live by certain sets of boundaries, certain restrictions that are placed upon us that we place upon ourselves. No matter our religious commitments, no matter how deeply we believe in freedom, we are all restricted in some way. And if you read the Bible, if you understand what Jesus is teaching, freedom is not the absence of restrictions, but it's instead coming under the right ones. Freedom is not the absence of restrictions, but it's committing to the right ones wholeheartedly. Musicians discipline themselves by hours and hours of practice. Professional athletes limit what they eat, and they run, and they lift weights so that they can perform well. Scholars carve out time to study with diligence so they can excel in their field. Spouses forego romantic involvement with others. These are all restrictions. They're very limiting, but we would never characterize them as enslaving. We would never characterize these as bad restrictions. These are things that we choose in order to be better people, healthier people, more prosperous people. Perhaps freedom is really all about finding the right restrictions, the restrictions that actually lead to true liberty. Everyone who sins, Jesus said, is a slave to sin. So the way to be free is to stop sinning. But who's he talking to here? We're Abraham's descendants, religious people, moral people, good people, well-behaved people, law-abiding citizens, slaves. These are the people in Jesus' teaching who need to be set free, and they don't know it. And there's nothing more enslaving than being a slave and not knowing you are. What could be more enslaving than being a slave and not even realizing it? There's no slave who's more enslaved than the one who thinks they're not. And maybe that's where, where you are this morning. And maybe that's the truth that you need to hear. Maybe you need to be woken up to the fact that in this area of your life that you've been hiding, that you haven't been contemplating, that you're actually enslaved. If Jesus were to come in this door this morning and tell you the truth shall make you free, what would he be talking about? What would he be putting his finger on in your life? What would you be resistant to see in your own life as actually enslaving and bondage? What in your life is your claim to be Abraham's descendants? Not me, Jesus. I'm Abraham's descendants. Not me, Jesus. I have my ducks in a row. Maybe it's a pattern of anger. Maybe it's a pattern of anger that's very disturbing to people in your life, and then someone comes and says something to you about it, and you deny it, and then you get angry. There's lots of angry people in the church, friends, and though they have a connection with Jesus, it's superficial. 
they're still tenaciously holding on to something that's eating them alive and harming other people. Maybe it's anger. Maybe you've wielded theological precision. Maybe you wielded your theological tradition as a weapon. And other people have gotten hurt. You're using what is meant to be a pathway to freedom to keep your distance from real change. You're a slave to the status quo, to a controllable, predictable God. Most people enslaved by this don't see it. In fact, one of the hardest things to help someone with is theological Phariseeism. Maybe it's not that. Maybe you talk about the grace of God and how beautiful and patient and kind Jesus is and people can't stand to be around you because you're stern and you're unforgiving. Maybe you're enslaved to a past that's been very hurtful. Maybe you're still living by the voices that someone very important to you spoke into your life and you can't stand to see someone else now given grace because you weren't. You're passing that hurt on to others because extending real grace just hurts too bad. Well, that's enslaving. That's bondage. We know, don't we, that religion, that good things, that good behavior can be one of the most effective cover strategies around. It can be a very deep place to hide, and it's hard to get someone out of that. And in that we are a religious institution, there's probably many of us that have those covers, those holes that we hide in this morning. The tragic thing is that not everyone wants to be free. Jesus has this amazing offer that he says, you can be free, but don't assume that you want to be free. Some of us like exactly where we are. The prison keeps us in, but it's safe and it's predictable. We know where the walls are. We don't want to be free. We can be enslaved by religion just, by, just as by any other addiction. By saying we're descendants of Abraham. You can't touch me. We miss taking the most important, the very first step of healing. And that's admitting our bondage. Owning up to the truth about us. Jesus is saying the first step to healing, the first step to freedom is knowing the truth. And this doesn't mean what it means at institutions of higher learning. That is accumulating more and more knowledge. That's fine. But accumulating knowledge can be a law unto itself. It can be our hiding place. But instead, what Jesus is talking about is acknowledging the diagnosis of the truth. Acknowledging what the truth says about us. You see, a doctor can't help you get better until you acknowledge that there's something wrong with you. Until you go to the doctor's office and say, you know what, I'm hurting inside and I don't know what it is, can you help me? He or she can't help you until you know that there's something wrong with you that only medical intervention can fix. That's the first step to freedom. Acknowledging the truth. That Jesus comes to you not as a moral teacher, uh, not as a moral teacher condemning your actions, but as a physician who wants to heal you, as a liberator who wants to set you free. Your biggest behavior, biggest problem is not your behavior, but it's your bondage. It's the bondage that leads you to behave in the way that you do. Your biggest problem is not knowing the truth, not acknowledging the truth about yourself. And the most enslaved person is the person who doesn't know it and doesn't admit it, that won't admit it. 
the second step. The first part of the truth is that you are in bondage to sin, but the second part of that is acknowledging that you can't free yourself. Your real problem is not in your circumstances, it's not in your job, it's not in your parents, it's not in your spouse. Your real problem is you. Your real problem is you. And you need to be rescued. I need a miraculous intervention by God. That's what acknowledging the truth is. That you'll never achieve your way out of your sin. You'll never good behave your way out of your sin. And as you begin to look to anything other than Jesus to free you, your good behavior, your intelligence, your appearance, your spouse, your job, your diploma, as soon as you look to that, it will enslave you. It will become your God. It will become your salvation. And the dirty little secret is that these things work for a time. These things work temporarily because it gives you what you're looking for. You outperform other people at work, and for a time, you're atoning for a past where you have been a failure. You grew up thinking you're ugly, and this new relationship tells you you're beautiful. And for a time, that's enough. It really feels good. It really begins to undo all those negative comments that you've been living under for so long. And these things are the, the shiny lure that's in the water that you bite down on. But see, now you're caught. Now you're a fish that's being reeled in closer and closer to death. And that lure can be religious duty. It can be illicit sex. It can be overwork. It can be drugs and alcohol. These all can be shiny lures in the water. And they can all work for a time. They can all soothe sorrow. They can all make you feel for a time that your anxieties are stilled, that your past doesn't control you. But then they take control. And so what's happening is you're, just, you're not escaping bondage. You're just changing its address. You're changing its resonance. They take control. They enslave you. And you still need rescue. Step two is acknowledging that you're caught. That you've bitten down on this lure and then it's drawing you into the boat and you're about to get clubbed. Third is that you ask. You look outside yourself. You in invite Jesus to make you free. To set you free. You come to believe that He's the only Master that will set you free. That He's the only Master that will command you to freedom. That will command you to, to, to true liberty. Everyone is in relationship to a master, and therefore Jesus doesn't come and say, you should be under a master. He presumes that you are. And he says, if you'll follow me, I will set you free. My truth will set you free. If you obey yourself, you'll never be free. If you obey your cultural narratives, you'll never be free. If you obey your desires, if you obey your greed, you'll never be free. Just like everyone else, you'll be enslaved. These things want to enslave you to them, but Jesus comes and says, I want to be a slave for you. I want to be a slave for you so that you can be set free. You see, Jesus became enslaved so that you can be set free. He lost his freedom. He gave up his freedom so that you can have it. He was nailed down on a cross. He was held down on a cross. He was lifted up and enslaved to the sin of the world. 
so that you can be set free. Not as a symbolic act, but really and finally and eternally free. Because, friends, what he did is not only go to a cross where he's nailed down and where he's enslaved for you, which we celebrate during this month and at Good Friday, but he also comes alive again. He doesn't give you just his death, but he gives you his life. And therefore, he says in verse 35, now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. A son, a daughter, a child belongs to the family forever, irrevocable. You're not a slave. You're not a servant who's earned their freedom. You're a son or a daughter. Live in that freedom because He's the only Master that will set you free. These people were enslaved by something designed to be very good, but it was killing them. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you're looking for a way to kill me. You see, he upset their apple cart. He said this good thing that you've been following for these many centuries is actually killing you. You've turned it into something that's leading you away from me. And so therefore, when I tell you that, you're looking to kill me. Because why? You have no room for my word. You have no room for the truth about you. And what is that word? What is the word that Jesus wants to reside in our heart? We'll go up to verse 12, which we didn't read. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but they will have the light of life, of life, of real life, of true living. Being set free, you see, isn't a one-time thing. It's not a box you check. It's not that you say, well, now I'm a Christian, now I'm free. No. What Jesus has done is he has begun to set you free, but you have to make room for his word. And that's what we're doing here. Each and every week, 52 times a year, we're trying to make room for His Word. We are carving out time, carving out places in our heart for room for God's Word to dwell, to abide with us, to change us, to set us free. Let's pray. Father, we have needs Many of these needs are voracious appetites that are killing us, that are dulling our senses, that are keeping us away from true freedom. We've either been hurt or we've just become so bored with life that we're looking for anything that looks like freedom. Father, help us to not ignore your truth, but instead to make room for it. As we confess our faith, as we come to your table, would you carve out deep channels where your truth can abide in us and let us look to you for our strength let us look to you to do the work that makes us free let us simply be available let us simply invite you in and would you do that work in us as individuals in us as families in us as a community and we pray in jesus name amen